0: So, Alexi and Sam, what was the last truly worthwhile thing you can remember spending three seventy five per month on? Spotify. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I love, I love Spotify. That is pretty worthwhile.
1: Are you going to compare us to Spotify?
0: <laughs> yes, we're just like Spotify. We provide as much user value as spotify uh if you head to patreon.com slash Loud or just go to ontarioloud.ca and hit patreon you can subscribe for 375 i should say u.s dollars a month which translates into five dollars canadian but also 224 u.s dollars per month which translates into three dollars canadian it helps us grow the podcast we're going to invest in some ads we are going to expand our reach and it helps us be the best podcast we can be so encourage you to do that today all right on the show to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs hosted by a Recovering Political Staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin.
1: I'm Sam Andrew. I'm Alexi White.
0: We've got a great pod for you today. We're going to be talking about the Indigenous blockades sweeping the nation uh, and some specific high-profile events that have happened in Ontario. We'll be discussing Doug Ford's continuing struggles to create a working license plate. And last but not least, some good news about poverty in Ontario. We might even squeeze in some conversation about the recent Liberal by-election wins in Ottawa. Lots to get through. But first, if you haven't yet, we want you, yes you, to head to ontarioloudcensus.ca. OntarioLoudCensus.ca, all one word, fill out our very short five-point questionnaire to tell us a bit about yourself and what you want more of or less of from this pod. You listen and think, you know what, I like this, but I need a little bit less, Chris. Well, that is not an acceptable answer, but we will record it anyways. Anything else we will take into consideration because we want this to be the best possible listening experience for you. We've been doing this for about uh, a little over a year now. Actually, maybe like closer to a year and a half, uh, which is crazy to think about. But yeah, we've never actually once turned to our audience and been like, What do you want more of and less of? So uh, head to OntarioLoudCensus.ca and tell us what you think today. Any other announcements and disclaimers? Sam, you were doing some research with University of Ottawa. That seemed kind of cool.
2: Oh, yes. Thank you, Chris. I forgot all about that. Yes. Go to digitalecosystem.ca slash report. Uh, And uh, we at the Ryerson Leadership Lab had been doing some research in the last federal election about the way that uh, the political parties and third parties used Facebook advertising through the election, Um, learned some really interesting stuff that you can read all about, uh, you know, for example, there are many ridings in Canada where we observe no political ads at all, uh, like sort of safe ridings where the party sort of didn't spend a dime. And then ridings like swing ridings like Milton uh, here in Ontario and uh, some ridings in Etobicoke where up to 90 percent of the ads that people saw on their feeds were uh, political ads from a bunch of different places. And so um, more stuff in the report. But uh, I think was an interesting sort of deep dive into the way uh, Facebook was being used um, as more and more of the ad money shifts online. So check it out, digitalecosystem.ca slash report. That's extremely interesting stuff.
0: Listeners might remember that we had Sam Jeffers uh, on an old pod to talk about this research at its outset. So this is basically the impact that it had on the election. So really interesting stuff. Okay, on to the news. Last week, the OPP moved in to arrest and remove 10 Mohawks of the Tiendenaga who have been blockading a CN rail line near Belleville, Ontario, in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs in British Columbia, who have been opposing the construction of a natural gas pipeline through their territory since January, the blocking of the construction of the pipeline itself, uh, and also blocking various rail lines in BC, as well as some pretty high profile protests in front of the actual bc legislature in victoria these protests have dominated the news i think continue to uh the time of recording and represent i think one of the most significant acts of civil disobedience that i can remember in at least recent canadian history the very next day early last week a group called rising tide toronto acting in solidarity with the first nations in bc blockaded the milton line of the gta's go transit system causing massive passenger delays at toronto's union station at rush hour there were also blockades near hamilton and caledonia by both indigenous communities and solidarity groups, uh, contributing to a lot of people taking a lot longer to get home than they might have realized. So a really high impact protest. By Thursday, the hereditary chiefs had agreed to meetings with the federal and the provincial governments in response to the RCMP leaving their territory as agreed, um, which were to take place before the weekend. So we'll see how that goes. Um, I might throw in a, a little update about If we hear anything like that today at the end in Ontario, the OPP have been removing individuals involved with the blockades due to an injunction won by CN rail, which forbids continued interference with the rail line under threat of arrest. And I'd say like, Writ large, these arrests have created a tense political situation across the country, with the federal government maintaining a position that the blockades must end, but continuing to seek a negotiated solution. In Ontario, Doug Ford has had his traditional soft touch, saying the prime minister must step up and take responsibility. Enough is enough. The blockades must come down. So... I mean, reflecting on this, it seems like this would be a difficult situation for any government. But I'm curious what we make of the act- of the actions of the Ontario government here, the federal government. And what does it sort of say about where we're currently at with truth and reconciliation in this country?
1: Oh, man. Who wants to take a first shot at this? This is a really tough topic.
0: Yeah. No, no. Agreed. And I, I think it's important to acknowledge it like – none of us are experts on the experience of indigenous people in this country or lawyers and a lot of things that would make us able to comment this on this sort of expertly. But you know, when we think about maybe just like what we're hoping to see and you know, how, how it's impacted us, I, I think it's an important issue to talk about.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know less about what's happening in the Ontario situation, certainly being in BC, um, there's, uh, different, uh, blockades and the different emphasis in the media. Um, and of course the provincial government here, I think the big difference in Ontario um, is that the, the province really doesn't have anything to do with this issue. Um, and the, the indigenous protesters want it that way. I mean, they, their relationship is with the crown. And so um, I, I don't actually think it's, it's too tricky for the province to, uh, to handle so long as they, they maintain a hands-off approach. Um, the worst thing they could do would be to start getting involved with the OPP's decision-making process, that kind of thing. Um, but um uh, you know, it, it obviously makes the situation worse when Doug Ford just sort of runs his mouth and um, sets back any attempts at uh, you know uh, conciliation and reconciliation uh, writ large. But you know, at the same time, I, I think he doesn't really want this as an issue for that he has to solve, uh, and the the indigenous protesters don't really want um, him involved in it either because their fight they see their fight as with the federal government. Um, and NBC, in it's interesting because I mean, the the, the coastal link gas pipeline that that is sort of the match that lit this uh is um you know more a provincial issue than it is a federal issue but um obviously the the federal government has taken the brunt um, with the especially with the spread of the protests going across the country it's i mean these are really tough issues and and we there's there's very many layers of these to pull back in the I just don't know how much time we have. I mean, the question you asked was, what does this say about truth and reconciliation? I mean, even before this happened, what would we have said was the state of reconciliation in Canada? I mean, it's so it's such a vaguely defined term. Uh, politicians use it left, right, and center. I mean, broader civil society uses the left, right, and center every time we want to have a land acknowledgement or something like that. And we've talked about this before. It's um, it's not a very well-defined term. And the I think one of the, the best criticisms I heard was as a result of that, um, you know, can really be, you know, it can be filled in with whatever you want, good or bad. And uh, in this case, I mean, I think uh, a lot of people are saying this is the end of reconciliation. I guess I don't know how far reconciliation ever got if you're even going to start calling it the end of reconciliation.
0: Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And, you know, I think back to we had uh, Arnold Blackstar on the pod to talk about Um, sort of the federal government's role in truth and reconciliation leading up to the federal election. One of the things I remember reflecting on at that time is, uh, and that I think is like really present in how I've seen people talk about these issues is like just a really low level of general public literacy on our history, on why people might be engaging in these actions. I mean, I get it's really frustrating to take longer to get home at the end of a day i mean that's an understandable emotion but <laughs> i'm sure like colonialism was really frustrating to uh and continues to be frustrating for people who are oppressed by it and i think that like the ways that i've seen people engage in this debate both on twitter and the media um did not really demonstrate to me like a you know a knowledge that you know if you were to sort of do a quiz uh, on sort of what is even in the truth and reconciliation report what are the calls to action what is the history that it addressed that there would be you know that like most canadian even people in the political and media spheres who are commentating on it would do very well
1: great that's a very very critical point chris and the media has I think, done a poor job of helping people become literate about it the the, the there's a tendency i mean this is not news but there's a, a tendency for the media to create um conflict narratives and they've certainly done that um and i think um have helped to raise the stakes in what is what was a you know these protests are not the end of the world um there was not a, a an imminent crash of the canadian economy coming if uh, if blockades continued uh and and that that sense was certainly not communicated through the media and the, the amount of breathless coverage of this uh, and how um, canada was being ground to a halt and all this kind of stuff um it was, it was over the top in my opinion. Um, and there's just, I think a lot of people have contributed to the situation spiraling out of control and need to take a step back and think about their contributions to this one.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I feel like the tech mine too. So like the oil sands, um, that would have been the largest oil sands project in Canada being, you know, the permit decision being at the same time and then them, withdrawing, I guess it was early last, or late last week, so that the federal government didn't have to decide. I just, if I find the sort of tension in Canada between energy and climate or the environment um, has obviously been a tension for decades. And it has felt like for most of Canada's history, energy has won out. And it feels like, you know, it was a week where Maybe that balance shifted a little bit and probably around the world. People, I think, on the side of keep the resources in the ground have got to feel like they have a bit of momentum on their side, which is just interesting, And I think, for a government that is clearly struggling with the tensions with, you know, Alberta and Saskatchewan and indigenous people, these are really tricky things to balance. And so it was interesting to watch them this week, try to wrestle with that, you know, sort of take the week and try to negotiate. And then they obviously ran, they felt like they ran out of runway um, to do so. Um, This is probably a biased comment. I thought it showed a level of kind of maturity in government, how they sort of handled the week leading up to they take the blockades need to come down but that's just like a political comment as opposed to really a comment about the substance of the blockades but yeah yeah i, I think that
0: like as i sort of follow the politics of it and because it sort of seems like the government was responding to like a like i, I would agree the government uh, certainly the government's position of there's room for negotiations didn't stark contrast to you know voices like andrew shear who i thought was the most blunt and brazen in his sort of like i not giving a shit about the other perspective uh doug ford sort of made echoes of the same sentiment but has not dove, dove into the bait uh i think rightly so to alexi's point but like in that sort of cacophony i wanted to sort of do a bit of a dive on what the issue actually is and my prior criticism of the media and the Twitter debate notwithstanding, there actually is some good material out there on what this issue is actually about. And I learned like a bunch of stuff that I think made me see this like in a in a whole new light. I mean, first of all, I actually did not know prior to this the Wet'suwet'en territory in BC was never ceded by treaty. Probably just not through growing up in BC, but I that's not a thing that I knew. The Wet'suwet'en was the group that won the Supreme Court case that established Indigenous title over unceded lands nationwide. Uh, and as I understand it, their own law applies, and that the hereditary chiefs have some authority over those ancestral lands. So, like when you hear people say. Rule the elected band councils want this. Rule of law has to prevail. It's not clear what Wet'suwet'en law actually allows, and it's very possible that these hereditary chiefs—and actually, um, according to many people who've commented—the hereditary chiefs have some authority over this land in question. I also learned that Indigenous title only goes actually so far. The Supreme Court ruling found that infringements on indigenous title can take place when there's adequate consultation and when the benefit to the public is proportionate to any adverse effect on aboriginal interest or that's how the ruling phrase it so as i understand it the issue of whether this coastal gas link pipeline is a justifiable infringement has not been settled by law Uh, but in sort of that ambiguity the province approved the permit for the pipeline anyways so the legality of the pipeline actually is in question. And that is what the creditor chiefs are arguing. And so and that is the context in which the injunction to allow the pipeline to proceed was given. Point of, I think uh, injunctions are, you know, a request by a court to stop a particular action. They are not a trial. It is not a whole hearing of an issue. It is, you know, no jury is uh, present it is, you know, the decision of a judge. Um, and that Decision is made based on a very limited set of criteria um, that certainly does not take into account the totality of all of those considerations that I just went through. And there's some really good research that came out of Ryerson University's Yellowhead Institute that showed that close to 75 percent of injunctions by corporations against Indigenous communities in Canada have been awarded in the uh, interest of those large companies, uh, which you know access to lawyers. Um, it took years for the Wet'suwet'en to get their original decision through the Supreme Court. So I don't know, when I was reflecting on this question, I think, like, we're having this political fight, but there's a real legal and moral matter that has yet to be settled over whether this pipeline is right. And the voices in this country that are just sort of like, we need to proceed no matter what I am finding myself having less sympathy for given the the weight of the history here. So yeah. is my uh, <laughs> my long rant about that.
1: I agree with you. I think the phrase rule of law gets thrown around a lot and starts to grate on on me because it doesn't get unpacked like you you just did. The idea that you can bring in an Indian act as a country uh, that forces a, a certain governance structure on a group of people. And then pretend that uh, as long as you've consulted that that government structure, which you yourself created through a system that has basically been built on the extraction of resources from indigenous land for hundreds of years, uh, like that is what the system was created to perpetuate, and then to be like, "Well, rule of law, rule of law." I mean, like, I think it's it's disingenuous, and and I um, I understand the political talking point. It's a very simple concept to people, uh, but it's it's so much more complicated than that.
0: And maybe. We shouldn't be be building a pipeline. But I mean, that is a whole separate matter. I'm thinking about what I wish the government were doing. It would be having a real conversation about what is the long-term future of indigenous title. Because if you believe in rule of law, you can't say that this pipeline just should go ahead right now, no matter what, because there is a real Ambiguities that have not been settled. Even if you only care about Canadian law and don't care about Wet'suwet'en law, the Supreme Court has already said that the Wet'suwet'en law does matter here. So
1: there's no politically, there's no easy way out of a crisis like this. Like I think a lot of the governments have done pretty well considering the options available when things get this bad. But to your point, Chris, the solution to this is is to actually make progress outside of when these crises pop up. Like now is not the time where you're going to suddenly have a breakthrough in reconciliation. You're going to Have a breakthrough in reconciliation because you put in the hard work and you push for the real change that's required to the law, to the way that we treat Indigenous people, to the recognition of their land rights in the months and years of reconciliation so that we avoid these kinds of crises. Uh, And I'm just not – I don't think that's happening in any meaningful way. People are trying and there's lip service being paid to it, but there's so much more we
0: can – It's frustrating. From something – moving on maybe from something really important to something a little less important, maybe a little lighter – The province has been planning to release a newly designed license plate for some time, and earlier this month, these license plates entered distribution. I must admit, I found the decision to change the license plates on Ontario something that was hard to get worked up about, but the fiasco that has arisen since they entered distribution has truly been something to watch. Shortly after the plates were released, a tweet by Kingston Police Officer Sergeant Steve Koopman went viral when he noticed the plates were virtually unreadable at night. The media really picked up on the story, and the government's response has been truly something to behold. When initially pressed, the Minister of Government and Consumer Services and Communications Mastermind Lisa Thompson indicated that the plates (laughs) were fine. Um, they were tested properly and that the existing liberal plates were in need of replacement because they were peeling and in shoddy condition as if all license plates were issued at the exact same time in this province. This despite the fact that the original license plates were implemented during the Bill Davis government and are blue already. Later, the government appears to reverse course a bit, admitting that something was wrong. They announced they plan to recall and replace the plates, but will keep issuing them in the meantime. They are putting the blame on manufacturer 3M. And Doug Ford was quoted as saying, once again, you had to peel me off the ceiling. I was so frustrated with 3M. So, I mean, reading this, it's been fun to follow. Calling it a scandal feels a little silly, but I'm just curious, like, what do we think went wrong here what's the government's response been and like do we have anything similar from our experience in government where you know something went wrong and what good issues management could look like
2: uh i find this whole thing uh hilarious to watch i think that i just <laughs> Who didn't shine a light on the license plate? That's literally how cars work. Like, <laughs> it's just the, it's just, it strikes me as completely wild that we are at this point. Um, I find the way they managed the issue, like, and again, this goes back to whenever people are like oh they're really maturing into government like they're getting better like why did it take 48 hours to uh acknowledge an issue that was very obvious from the second anybody looked at it and and why send out lisa to do what she did with the Uh liberal plates thing like it just embodies everything that continues to plague this government's uh ability to govern and i um uh, tabitha Suthi, the uh wrote an amazing article on this that like is close to a work of art, in my opinion, but I want to just read it because it it summarizes exactly what I think. So, uh, once you understand that the purpose of these new license plates was never, in fact, to identify vehicles or their owner, everything looks different. Once you realize that these plates were designed only to embody conservative governance under Doug Ford, then the completely unnecessary, entirely unavoidable, implausibly denied, and totally self-inflicted shambles we're witnessing start to look like near genius. These plates perfectly represent how Doug Ford's government is renewing its entire approach to government as only something that didn't need to be done that inspired ridicule that's costing us a lot of money that we're stuck with them for now and that we really need to <laughs> to replace could do it's rare that any government commission project goes off without a hitch like this one my apologies doug ford you nailed it
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing
2: yeah the whole the whole liberal conservative license plate construct
1: is like it's just offensive uh um, the way that I mean, it's all governments do this a little bit, but this government just does not have the ability to just recognize some some pieces of government as just things that government does that are not that political, but they're just basic services they provide. I mean, next thing they're going to be saying, they have to close down all the, the driver's license offices that the liberals had open because they're all like tainted with liberality and they need to reopen new conservative ones. Like it just, there are basic things that continue on outside of partisan politics that this government just doesn't doesn't seem to recognize every every opportunity they can. They 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 put some kind of political spin on it, and I, I just think most people hear that and and um, it grates on them after a while. Like I just don't think that people like that that what it says about this government. Also, I yeah, I just I feel like we should stop and pour one out for poor Lisa Thompson, the minister who is holding the bag on this one. I mean, she she started off in education, and it, things went. Very bad, very quickly there for her, and she got moved over to a nice, what is considered a very safe, low-profile ministerial role in government services. I mean, how badly can things go over in government services? And oh my god, uh, it just—it's like it's following her around. She's like Typhoid Mary or something. For this government,
0: but... oh yeah. No, one of the things that I love about this particular thing is that in my research if you can call it that for this uh for this particular segment of the pod the toronto star in response to this story published a retrospective on ontario license plates where you can trace the whole history of license plates in ontario and that is not something that would be on the landing page of torontostar.com without this and without the liberal and conservative plates comment so like i think like the existence of that now history of license plates that was spent you know a day on the landing page of the star you can trace back to that particular comment by lisa thompson i, I tried i'm trying to look at this like a little bit like obviously it's really dumb um and i was trying to look at, think of it like in sort of like a sense of fairness to the government like you know government is full of complicated things that need to roll out quickly the government does not themselves manufacture license plates You know, they have to contract with people and you have to trust your contractors are going to know what they're doing. And so I do think there is something to this that is probably 3M, but I love how they're getting no sympathy for that because it was such a brazen partisan ploy to put more blue on the plates in the first place. That it's like, you know, yes, there's risk in everything you do in government, but like this, like the risk didn't need to be there in the first place. Just been a really fun one to follow. And like the public's reaction, as I've gauged it, is one of exasperation but i i haven't gotten like a there's no new outrage that's being created i think it is now like perfectly in line with where the polls are telling us the public expects from the Doug Ford government
2: well and the other thing is it's they continue to just amaze me in finding ways to screw things up that like everyone notices like lots of government things like can be screwed up that are maybe a very small constituency might notice if you screwed that up but like Everyone is knows about the license plates because they see them, right? Like, and like on you know the stuff they're doing on schools again impacts like almost everybody in the province. So I just think like uh, it's it's impressive. It's impressive.
1: <laughs> but I mean, Chris, you are absolutely right that um, from our experience in government, I mean, things do go wrong, and they do go wrong quite spectacularly sometimes. Um, and so, to be charitable, like I think my guess from my experience um, is that. The only thing I can think of is that they they rushed these for some reason and so there was – there must have been some reason why they uh, had a, a timing imperative that they were trying to meet um, that that maybe prevented the full due diligence to be done. I mean it's it's not like there aren't license plates that look like these new license plates out there that that do work, right? I mean license plates come in all shapes and sizes – well, okay, actually I guess they come in the same shape and the same size. They come in all shapes <laughs> and
0: and, and... my uh, my uh coming Ontario themed vanity plate I wanted I've tried to ask for a shape of ontario no, I'm gonna, it's like a michael
2: bloomberg joke like they look nice like i don't care about the Reed side. i no. just think it's hilarious that they fucked it up
1: <laughs> yeah no, exactly but i mean so my experience with something i mean way worse than this arguably because of you know the impact it actually had on people um was being in the ministry of community and social services during the implementation of the social assistance management system so sam's as it was colloquially known um, and that was a bit of a, uh, a screw up um, and that was caused by uh, rush rushing the, the computer system basically um, for reasons uh mostly that delay could have jeopardized the project's future entirely and i mean there's just sort of realities of governance that um, sometimes make you roll the dice and pull and, and and sort of push things uh forward knowing that things are not a hundred percent but um but still believing that they're they're close enough and in this case things were worse than uh, anticipated with the, the implementation of that uh, software. And as a result, I mean, be, uh, by all accounts, people, because of the heroic work of, of people in social assistance offices in the municipal and provincial level across the province, people who needed their social assistance still got it, which was great. But the pressure that that implementation put on the staff was uh, tremendous and long-lasting and terrible for them. So uh, it took a while to get over that, but I mean, the way the, the way that the government first handled that was better uh, than this government in that we didn't start off with a a sort of denial of there being a problem because that's that's always doesn't ever seem to go well
0: Um, (laughs) the first stage is denial actually
1: and then um, there's sort of there's a phenomenon of kind of a drip 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 of stories on these these things in the media which is uh, what really kills you and to to get ahead of that i mean it took us a while to get ahead of that but uh, in order to get ahead of that, there was a, an external review conducted of the system, what is the path we need to get back to stability, and then a government plan that was put out with a date saying here's how we're gonna get there and, and milestones and all that kind of stuff. And once you have that plan in place, once you have a third party saying, Yeah, we've looked at this, it's, you know, it's 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 it is what the government's saying it is and and it's just gonna take time to fix it. The story tends to, to dissipate. There's just not that drip, drip, drip of new information, of uncertainty. You Once you have a plan you're sticking to it, and as long as you actually stick to that plan and achieve it, it there's just not a lot of new new, new newsworthy information. And so, I mean, I, I would expect that that the government's trying to to do something like that. I mean, I think in this case, what I haven't seen, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, is is anything that verifies what the problem actually was and who is responsible for it and what is specifically going to be done to fix it. Um, but I don't know if If that is coming or if I think if if they don't come completely clean, they risk that continued development of the story. Um, And so my my advice is once these things go bad is you got to just put it all out there at once and be really open about the path back to sanity again.
0: I look forward to the 40 page report commission and implementation plan on fixing Ontario's license plates.
2: Well, even yes, the the only thing they've said is that they're going to have new license plates within the next three weeks, which again, I'm just like. Okay, but like, is it going to be fixed in three weeks? Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Exactly.
0: I have a conspiracy theory. I have a conspiracy theory, and it is a conspiracy theory. I will put it out there. But this talk of of like, you know, what could have been driving them to rush this, got me thinking. Were they trying to get these license plates out in advance of the by election so people saw more blue? How do we think that went for them? Uh, as we know, the Liberals uh, held on to their two seats in uh, two recent Ottawa elections, uh, last week and the PC vote share was the lowest it has ever been
2: in. Yeah. In both ridings. So yeah, in Ottawa, Vanier, they've never gotten less than 20% and they got about 11% in the end. And then in Orleans, they'd never been below 30% and ended around 23, I think. So, I mean, they're by elections in the dead of winter, uh, in pretty liberal safe ridings. So I could take it with... A heaping spoon of salt but i can't imagine they're feeling pretty good right now well and like they clearly by announcing the french language university during the writ period of the by-elections like they clearly were trying like they didn't totally write them off and so yeah they can't be happy with how that went but congratulations to the two new liberal members of caucus up to eight now and would have had party status had the doug ford government not changed the rules and made it 12 seats to have party status if only there'd been more blue on the road
0: (laughs) People might have changed their mind. (laughs) Um, Our last uh, topic today is new federal figures from Statistics Canada show that the number of Canadians living in poverty has shrunk from 4.2 million to 3.2 million in 2019, with the national poverty rate dropping to 8.7% in 2018 from 9.5% a year earlier. In Ontario, we actually have a slightly higher poverty rate than the rest of the country, with 10.2% of Ontarians falling below the poverty line, and that fell to 9.5%, so a slight improvement in Ontario as well. However, we saw slight increases in youth poverty, a 0.4% increase in the rate, which does not track with the decrease in the youth rate that we saw across the country. So, Alexi, I want to turn to you, and what do we think this data really says about um, poverty um, in aggregate over the last year or so? And, you know, from what should be, I think, a good uh, overall good news story, what should people be taking from it?
1: The data you're referencing about poverty is from the 2018 Canada Income Survey. So for 2018. Uh, so the data is a little bit old and we need to remember that this is 2018 right so like we're grounding ourselves politically we're sort of we start off in a liberal government there's an election in the middle of the year we have conservative government so that's the kind of timeline of policy we're talking about and so the, the changes that even would be put into place that would affect this year would be federal and and provincial policies related to poverty in the years leading up to 2018 so that's just to ground us in that um and then on top of that the canada income survey i would encourage people to go and check out the daily StatsCans um sort of newsletter on these things uh for the 24th of february they have a good sort of summary of what was in the canada income survey results for 2018 and it goes over everything i mean medium after tax income across the country looking at different provinces um poverty rates is one big piece of it of course um but also uh they have a section on income inequality uh which uh, dropped dropped ever so slightly um and so there's uh, there's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff uh, about income in Canada uh, in 2018 here. To your question about sort of what this says about poverty, I mean, the the sort of headline that I think the government is pushing around poverty is that continued drop, um, and especially the, the decreases we've seen in child poverty across the country. And a lot of that has been chalked up to the introduction of the Canada Child Benefit, uh, which has been um, actually incredibly successful. It turns out, shocker, that if people don't have money, and then you give them money, they end up with more money. So <laughs> yeah, um,
0: hopefully that is. we'll learn
1: from this experience and maybe we can repeat it again. So we'll see. I mean, there was some interesting... So, so yeah, I mean, I think we need to, to give the governments that have been, been investing, especially in child poverty, the credit for doing that. You know, our poverty rates are, are still quite high, in my opinion. I mean, we're nowhere near the States, but that's not something we should be comparing ourselves to, in my opinion. There's a long way to go to continue to see uh, increase, to, to pull more people out of poverty. And the great thing is that there's um actually more data here than just you know a poverty line so um the government is now because of the federal poverty reduction strategy they're now publishing a dashboard of indicators just like ontario is doing with its poverty reduction strategy and so you can you can see some things trending in a good direction such as the the rates of poverty uh where other things suggest uh, challenges on the horizon so food security uh Problems are increasing, according to the dashboard. Housing security issues are increasing slightly. So you know it's not a everything is not going great. There are certainly some some troubling signs, um, but overall, uh, it's 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 great to see that uh, people are being pulled out of poverty, and it seems to be a continued downward trajectory, uh, trajectory. Sorry for the last couple of years. So so that's great.
0: What I'm taking away from this discussion is a good news on poverty. B. Kudos to the federal government for looking at it realistically. C, a real urge from all of us to go read the Statscan Daily newsletter uh, to all Ontarians. It is well written. It is a fascinating read. Real page turning stuff. Um, all right. I think that's a, that's a wrap for today. Uh, anything else, guys?
2: Go listen to the new Lady Gaga song. <laughs> <laughs> it's true.
0: Uh, we would make it our theme song, but then we need to pay Lady Gaga royalties and we can't afford her royalties unless you donate on Patreon. You want to hear Lady Gaga oh, wow. as our thing.
1: We'll need a lot of Patreon. We'll
0: need a lot of Patreon support. <laughs> all right, see you next week. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Wanna acknowledge that in the time since recording, the federal government and the wet hereditary chiefs actually reached a deal. Uh, that apparently addressed some of the underlying land claim issues we discussed on the pod today. So we don't know exactly what is in that deal yet, but we spent a lot of time today talking about how we wish a government would, rather than you know deal with the situation in the moment, tackle some of the underlying issues. And it seems like the federal government took just that approach, so big kudos to them. Ontario Loud is Sam Mandry, Alexi White, and myself, Chris Martin. Our volunteers are Herman Mundy, Aisha Anwarp and Philip Askew. Philip actually attended a solidarity protest this weekend in Toronto. That was the audio you heard at the beginning of the show. I found listening to it really moving, so I wanted to put it on. Thank you, Philip, so much for sharing that with us. It's been a longer pod today, so I'll sign off for now, but I want to especially say that we are recording on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas, the Credit, and many nations. We stand in solidarity with indigenous people across this country who are fighting for their rights to this day. We'll see you next week.